Success Insight shares the stories of the people with passion and drive who make things happen in the world. Here's your host, Howard Fox. Hello, everybody. This is Howard Fox. For my co-host, Randy Ford, I'd like to welcome you to another episode of the Success Insight podcast. Our guest today is Dr. David Kaufman. David is a published author whose works include academic writing, journal articles, books, both fiction and nonfiction, and I've invited David onto the show today to talk about his newest book, Clues to the Lower Mississippi Valley Histories, Language, Archaeology, and Ethnography, which was just published by the University of Nebraska Press. David has degrees in international studies, linguistics, and anthropology. David, welcome to the Success Insight Podcast. Thank you. So, David, when I was writing up the introduction here, in the spirit of full disclosure, there were some words in the introduction about some of the books that you have written, and I was wondering, kind of share share what those other two books are before we kind of dive in more about you and your latest book. Uh, You mean the language books? Yeah, you've published two language books. Mm -hmm. Well, actually three. Three. uh, Now, since uh, the Biloxi Dictionary, which was the first one originally published in 2011, the first edition. Second edition is 2015. And then the Mobilian Trade Language, which was published in 2017. And the Takapa Ishakoi Dictionary that was just published actually in August of this year. Excellent. Congratulations on those. And, you. you know, if we have some time, perhaps we can dive a little bit back into those. But if you can share with our audience a little bit more about you and your work and your interest in linguistics and really, and seem to me, it's keeping languages alive. True, yes. Well, I've been interested in languages since I can remember. I mean, I started studying, you know, European languages when I was a teenager. You know, the standard Spanish, French, Italian, and so on. And that continued as I went through high school and college. I took French and Spanish. And then when I decided to go for my graduate degrees, I studied other languages. And I, I guess it was after I got my master's degree and just before I started my PhD that I really got interested in Native American languages and kind of just ran with it as far as I was told about the Biloxi language, which nobody else had really been working on. And that started, I guess, around 2002, 2003, somewhere in there. So that was kind of my first exposure to a Native American language. And, you know, that led to the eventual publication of this revised dictionary. There had been a dictionary published back in, see, it was 1912. By other, you know, very early linguists, and the dictionary is really a mess. That 1912 dictionary is a mess for people to try and learn the language with. So I wanted to use my knowledge and my skills to make a more user-friendly dictionary for the descendants of the Biloxi people. And that's how I kind of got hooked on language revitalization, and that kind of became the focus of my linguistic anthropology doctorate. Excellent. And, you know, I am curious, I want to touch on the Biloxi Dictionary. Before I do that, I am curious, what was the initial insight for you or about language that just fascinated you such that you'd want to go out and start to make it your career, so to speak? I don't know if there was a single trigger point or whatever. It was just, as I think back on it now, I realize that even even before I was a teenager, probably, I was just fascinated with the way other people from other cultures can say things using a different language. 
And I kind of wanted to know about that. And then I kind of got interested, you know, when I started learning Spanish and Italian. And I thought, well, you know, boy, those are similar, but they're also different. And so how are they similar and how are they different? And that's kind of how I, you know, it, it kind of evolved into comparative historical perspective on languages. I see. You know, I have to admit that, you know, the statement you just said about the Spanish, French, Italian, and they're, they're similar, but they're different. That has always amazed me is that, you know, Europe, perhaps at one time it was considered this vast land area, but looking at the map today and seeing how connected we are in the world, it's just, it's amazing how you can have such different languages within such close proximity. And I imagine the borders are more, I don't know, I guess it would be uh, porous is, you know, the bits and pieces of each language kind of meld together. I, I don't know if that's an oversimplification. Well, it's slightly oversimplified, but, you know, one of my focuses and one of my focuses in the book, Clues to Lower Mississippi Valley Histories, is language contact and how these various languages some related, others not related at all, how they come into contact through time, through migration, through trade, and through different you know mechanisms, which has happened throughout history around the world, and seeing how these languages take on certain aspects of each other, both grammatically and from, uh, you know, lexically, uh, word borrowings and so on, but seeing how they kind of take on aspects of each other it depends on the level of contact, how much they take on of each other's, um, you know, grammar or especially the grammar. It's easier to take on word borrowings. <laughs> sure. But um, that's one linguistics perspective that I looked at is language contact and how language contact can be a powerful force in shaping languages. So within the lower Mississippi Valley histories, and as I was reading parts of the book, you had to find like three areas. There was the Rio Grande, mm-hmm. lower Mississippi Valley, and there was the, the other area, which was, I guess, going east. Oh. Gulf uh, Appalachian, yeah. And as you were writing this book or doing your research, are there enough, I guess I would say accurate, and again, please correct me if it's the wrong choice of words, are there enough books, papers, writings to, to study and to start to paint that bigger picture of the histories within the lower Mississippi Valley and seeing whether it was trade, interactions, word exchanges, migration. How did that all kind of work together to produce this body of work for you? Well, it depends on the languages. Some had more work on them than others. Unfortunately, and this this is exemplified in the Southeast, uh, Southeastern United States, several of the languages actually died out or went extinct. Um, and the, you know, the people actually went extinct in some cases before the languages could be documented. So we have several cases. I mean, there's, you know, I can't say how many offhand, but there, I don't know if we even know how many, you know, but um, several languages in the Southeast uh, and in the lower Mississippi Valley, just we know nothing about because they were not documented before they you know, could be looked at. Other languages, including the main ones that I focused on in the Clues book, fortunately, we had documentation on those. We had early linguistics missionaries and professionals who were looking at the languages and began to write things down. They interviewed the last speakers in several cases 
and kind of collaborated. The last speakers, thankfully, of these languages collaborated with these linguists or missionaries in order to for them to be able to write these things down and get them documented in some format. So we did and the cases that I've worked with, I mean, there's documentation. It's often very old, dating back to the 19th century or early 20th century. And that's part, part of the difficulty is just finding these resources and then trying to figure them out and then trying to look at them from a more modern perspective. We know a lot more about linguistics and languages now than, you know, these early linguists did back in the 19th century, for instance. So it's kind of looking at these things in a new light based on what they originally documented. In the book, and I'm looking at the title, you've got the language, you've got the archaeology, ethnography. How do the latter two play into the understanding of the language and serving to keep it alive? Archaeology plays an important part. Uh, Anybody that reads the book will see that I talk a lot about crops, for instance, also weaponry, like bows and arrows and different types of weapons that were used. But the big thing is the crops, especially looking at maize, corn, that was the biggie, of course, uh, around uh, 1000 AD, coming into North America. And although, you know, it has to be emphasized that agriculture in North America actually dates back much earlier than that to about 3000 BC. So by looking at the words for certain crops like corn or pumpkin or squash or beans and so on, we kind of, or in different kinds of weapons, uh, such as bows and arrows in their names, um, we get an idea of Okay, did these languages borrow from one another, this terminology? Were they in contact with each other? Or did they perhaps already have these things when they arrived in the southeast or in the lower Mississippi Valley? And that's one way we can kind of determine, first of all, time when migrations happened or when trade happened, because we archaeologists kind of know, you know, based on dates, radiocarbon dating and so on, when these things came or arrived. And then we can kind of figure out, based on the language evidence, how these groups migrated, if or when they came into contact, and so on. So you've got crops, you've got weaponry, you've got the archaeology of where people are living, you know, uh, and the, the the items or artifacts that are being found. So you also mentioned the ethnography. Uh, the ethnography comes in with basically the people's own stories of their history, oral histories, which was, you know, passed down through generations. You know, that's very interesting. Is the oral history are those stories still, for the sake of a better word, known versus, you know, you've got the, you've got the, the missionaries, you've got the folks who were curious, you know, about collecting information. Very insightful, by the way. So you've got some written content. How have the stories continued? Do they serve to, to help you go further back in time where the, perhaps when the written word didn't exist? Yes, I mean, they can. You have to be careful. You know, stories do kind of change over time in in certain cases. um, And we have to let, you know, sometimes there can be, let's say, two or three different origin stories. And, you know, we kind of have a, if you want to look at the modern Christian uh, tradition, for instance, we have an example of that in the Bible with the two different stories of Genesis in the Bible. So... It's not unusual for people or cultures to often have maybe two or three different origin stories, migration stories. And you just have to be careful in seeing, well, how many groups are repeating this or, you know, which 
stories seem to be most prominent or most likely compared to other. It's a complicated process, but some academics have said in the past, you know, you should never use oral histories or oral stories because they're not reliable. Well, I think they are reliable to a certain degree because all over the world, people told stories. They were part of oral histories and oral traditions long before things were ever written down, including with ancient Europeans. So, these things do tend to stick around for thousands of years. You know, sometimes they get passed down as part of the oral history. So I do believe you have to look at that and you have to kind of figure out how much of this can actually meld with the language evidence and the archaeological evidence. And I think where you can meld it together, it makes for a stronger case because it's from people's own histories, from their own cultures that are helping to support these ideas. You know, thinking about your work, Though it has been many years since I have been in in school, you know, and I, and I think school being high school, middle school, elementary school, where we learn history, and I would suspect that our history, what we learned, doesn't adequately reflect what really went on in the who the original inhabitants of our country was, of this land was, not our country. Of this land, because you just talked about, you know, there's evidence potentially going back 3000 BC. You know, you had communities, there was active trade going on, there's the language, there's the having to get along, or perhaps the opposite, they don't get along, and there's wars. And so our history goes back a lot farther. And I, it, it, I suspect we, being the, the settler, the, our parents who, or grandparents who came over from, Europe and other parts of the world (laughs) didn't truly appreciate, you know, the role that the indigenous inhabitants of the land actually had in who we are today. Right. You know, it's still a part, it's still very much a part of American pop culture, I would say, and pop teaching school, grade school, and even high schools and so on. Um, You know, it's like, there's this, ongoing idea that uh, nothing was here and everything started with Columbus, you know, discovering this vast wilderness that was North America. And the people that were here were just nomadic hunter-gatherers and they, you know, lived in teepees and rode around on horses. Or I mean, that's kind of the image a lot of people have. I think when you think of, a lot of people think of Native American, they think of, you know, uh, kind of the cowboy and Indian type Western scenario. But the truth is that that's really far from the truth because, well, you do have certain cultures in North America that indeed were hunter-gatherers. But then again, you have people down in the area that I study, lower Mississippi Valley and the southeast. These areas were heavily agricultural. These were farmers. They were sedentary. They may have gone out on hunts once in a while for buffalo or deer and, you know, different things like that. Did some hunting and gathering. But yeah, I mean, agriculture goes back three to 4,000 AD in North America. And, you know, there were a lot of people who were farming and were more leading more of a sedentary lifestyle and they had actual houses. There's the plains people, hunters that were, you know, living in teepees when they went, especially when they went out on, uh, you know, expeditions, hunting expeditions for buffalo and things like that. But even they weren't necessarily always living in a teepee. They still had houses, you know, that they would return to. But in the Southeast, it was definitely more, uh, these people were farmers, they were sedentary, they traded, 
And they were uh, mound builders. The first mounds in the Americas were not built in Mexico or Peru. They were built in northern Louisiana. And so the lower Mississippi Valley is kind of uh, key to this ancient history of North America that dates back thousands of years. I mean, we know the earliest mounds that were built in northern Louisiana, for instance, date back to about 3,500 to 4,000 BC. Can you still see the mounds down in Louisiana? Uh, yes. I mean, there's a poverty point that dates back to about 1,500 BC. It was a very large, complex mound center, and they were big traders. I mean, there's evidence that they were trading with people from the Rockies to the Appalachians, from the Great Lakes to the Gulf. The mound building tradition continued well, actually, up into, you know, almost about 1780 among the Mississippian peoples who were uh, the primary inhabitants of the Southeast and the lower Mississippi Valley, but even all the way up into Wisconsin uh, and the Midwest, upper Midwest. Um, I mean, it covered a vast territory. You know, the common element that I'm seeing just listening to the conversation and, you know, certainly reading from the book is the the river network Mm -hmm. was kind of the conduit that allowed this type of living lifestyle, if you could call it that, to exist is Mm -hmm. traders can go from or explore or, you know, expedition groups could go from place to place and looking for food or clothing or medicines you traveling the 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 network of rivers and that's where they come into contact with the local natives so to speak i'm curious with the book you know i I know it is certainly going to appeal to other academics who and students who will hopefully students who (laughs) appreciate the you know, the intricacy and, and really the, the fabric of, of what this land was and how it, where, and where we are with it today. What are the other benefits of the book in, in, in keeping, whether it's the stories or the languages alive? Well, I mean, there are several benefits, I think, to the book. Uh, it's not only for the people who may be uh, descendants of these uh, Native societies, such as the Atacapayshaks, the Tunicas, the Biloxis, and so on. But also, from an archaeological, anthropological perspective, I mean, it, it tells us something about the migration patterns at early dates, well before, you know, Europeans were here. I mean, but the focus of my book is basically 500 to about 1700 AD. So this is long history. You know, the Europeans colonizers didn't come here until the 1500s, you know, with DeSoto, for instance. So we're looking at a long history here that dates well back before European colonization and even thousands of years before European colonization. And so the language and the archaeological and ethnographic evidence can tell us altogether something about that ancient history that wasn't written down, but we can infer a lot of it from language as well as the archaeology and the ethnography. And, you know, you were mentioning trade and so on. One of the aspects that I kind of touched on in my book is something that's kind of been kind of controversial among academia, academics, the idea of the Gulf of Mexico being a conduit basically between Mexico and the Southeast. One of the things I focus on in my book is doing an analysis, uh, including the Totonac language of Mexico and how there are not only borrowings, but also grammatical similarities between this central Mexican language and like Choctaw and Mobilian jargon of the Southeast. It's like, well, 
how did this come about other than by contact? You know, there may not have been a huge migration, but there definitely appears to have been trade and contact going on across the Gulf, not just up the rivers or, you know, walking up a trail. <laughs> Boats and canoes seem to have played a much bigger part in Native American history than we've given them credit for, including possibly, you know, rather than just coming across the Bering Strait, which has always been the straight story that we're told, you know, from the time we enter school. Um, it seems now with the DNA and uh, archaeological evidence that uh, these people were probably, a lot of these people were coming in by boats. So that's one of the more fascinating aspects of, you know, this whole history. Thank you for sharing that. And it, it just, again, I think back to the books that we had when I was growing up in school and to think that there's technology, there's the research uh, acumen today that allows us to paint a picture of something, you know, that, that even goes further back. And I guess that's uh, the one thankful aspect I have of, you know, technology and the advancements of science and our understanding that we can start to look back, you know, through your work and other work to, you know, to a, a much richer history. I am curious in, in the time we, we have together, from a language perspective, is there a resurgence in, for example, the ancestors that are living today of those who were a part of the lower Mississippi Valley and the the environs around that are appreciating an understanding of their of their history and of the, uh, of the language and how it has evolved. It depends. Uh, <laughs> again, it kind of depends on the the group uh, that we're talking about. Uh, but I would say there's definitely a trend now toward descendants of many Native American groups uh, wanting to learn their ancestral language and to feel like they're part of that heritage. Because a lot of, you know, a lot of the modern Native American descendants, they don't know that much sometimes about their own history, their own culture, and sometimes they just feel lost. Learning the language and relearning their culture and history is one way that they can connect to their ancestry and to that history. I find that very interesting. And growing up and just kind of hearing, you know, you go on vacation up to Mackinac Island. So I grew up in Michigan. I remember going to Mackinac Island and, mm-hmm. and just hearing all the stories of the, the tribes that were up in that area. And there's always the demonstration of the language and, and somebody in native garb comes out and they, they do the, the song or share the story. And, and it's, I, I just think it's wonderful that we can kind of help, enlighten others about their about their history so it's truly very fascinating david if our listeners want to learn more about you and your work where would they go to find that information i would suggest they check out my website that i have which is wordling edit that's w-o-r-d-l-i-n-g edit.com. That's kind of my business, uh, personal business page. Uh, but I also uh, discuss, you know, my writings, my books. Uh, in fact, people can, there are links to the books that I've published on there. And uh, part of the business that I'm doing now is uh, editing and kind of being a publishing coach. I'm working with a publishing company called Exploration Press. We're a startup company, and they're the ones that have published my last couple of books. Um, based in Chicago, but um, I would send them there uh, and um, just contact me. I think my uh, email address may actually be in the book or in a couple of the books anyway, and along with my uh, website. 
And I'm certainly willing to help answer any questions. Uh, and I think people can also, regarding the book in particular, it's a clues to Laura Mississippi Valley's book. I think they can reach me through Amazon also. Excellent. And we're also, in addition to your website, which we're going to put on our show notes, we'll have a link uh, back to the book so they can uh, find it uh, on Amazon as well. David, thank you so much for joining us today uh, to chat about your work and the book Clues to the Lower Mississippi Valley Histories, the Language, Archaeology, Ethnography, uh, which was published by the University of Nebraska Press just recently. So congratulations on the book. And again, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Thank you, Howard, for the opportunity. There you have it, folks. We've just been chatting with Dr. David Kaufman, author of really a wonderful, fascinating book. It kind of takes our history far further back than Columbus in 1492. It's very fascinating. And again, we're going to put the links to David's website up on our show notes, as well as a link to his book uh, on Amazon. I hope you enjoyed today's session. It's a little different than, you know, all of our authors have different stories and different reasons for why they're writing their books. And this is what makes, I hope, this show a rich tapestry of conversation. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, go out there, have a phenomenal day, and we will see you on the next episode of the Success Insight Podcast. Take care now. Success Insight is a production of Fox Coaching and First Story Strategies. Find us online, successinsightpodcast.com.